Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, hey there. It is October 7th on your calendar, 5.05 p.m. on your clock, and Craig Roberts on your radio. See how we did that? (laughs) Great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. Pretty jam-packed program for you tonight. Uh, Coming up in hour number two, we've kind of uh, um, put brand new uh, energy into our Church of the Wheat feature here at KFAX. We've got a very special guest coming up tonight in the 6 o'clock hour. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. Just want you to make it a point to stick around for that. Also later on in this first hour tonight, Dr. Brian Thomas is going to join us, research scientist from the Institute for Creation Research. He's going to be in town for a special event that you'll have a chance to uh, attend if so inclined coming up on October the 16th at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno will talk not only about that presentation, but get into some real fundamental questions related to mankind, how we came to be, how much of this is all the result of a big bang or intelligent design. It'll be an interesting conversation as Dr. Brian Thomas joins us later on in this first hour. As we launch out tonight, you know, um, If we've learned anything over the course of the last 18 months or so, we've learned certainly from COVID that life, life is unpredictable. You know, Bible tells us that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust and that um, Christ will return in the twinkling of an eye, be it his imminent return or some of those unexpected events in life, maybe illness or injury, loss of income, sudden passing of a spouse, not only for many pastors would represent emotional turmoil, but economic turmoil as well. Many pastors have spouses that are working full time in order to make ends meet. And as you look at the broader picture of that sense of insecurity that such unexpected life events can supply, along with questions over things like social security. You know, as of uh, the recent weeks here, the U.S. debt, we've been talking about the debt ceiling, the U.S. debt is now 104% of GDP. The last it was that high was during the close of World War II. In fact, even during the depth of the Great Depression, it came nowhere near that number. And with the current spending rate as we have it in America and little interest in Washington, D.C. to do anything about it, it is estimated at this current spending pace that our debt will reach 200% of GDP in just a scant 30 years. What's going to happen to Social Security along the way? Well, you can bet that that will be one arena that they will look seriously at perhaps changing and reducing. So if you can't rely on life, you can't rely on the government, what do you do, particularly as a pastor in full-time ministry or a church worker, to make sure that your future is prepared for, not only for the eventuality of retirement, but those unplanned events along the way, as I mentioned, such as illness or other events. Well, with some insights, we're joined now by Reverend Augie Bow. Reverend Bow is with MMBB. He is a retirement planning specialist, has worked for the organization for, my goodness, almost 30 years now. He is a not only a licensed minister, but also a CFP, certified financial planner, and uh, in, in very 
very brief definition that means an incredibly smart guy. And uh, Augie, is always great to have you with us. Well, thank you, Craig. It's my pleasure to join you again. Always enjoy talking with you. You know, some of these unexpected life events that I alluded to are things that not only befall all of us in the pews, but pastors as well. And while I think a lot of us may have reliance upon um, health insurance, life insurance through the job that we work at, things of that sort, unfortunately for a large percentage of pastors here in the Bay Area, many of those safety nets, quite frankly, and sadly, just don't exist. That's right. And um, I play in the Godfrey Sports League. And a couple of nights ago, um, I led a fellowship with our leadership team. I'm the commissioner for a league that um, plays basketball and kind of reaches out to people with the gospel message. And my um, fellowship topic was from Matthew 7, which is a very familiar parable of building your house on the rock or the sand. And most listeners, I I think, have heard it many times. They know the song about it. But in this life, as you've mentioned, Craig, there are a lot of unpredictable things. And unfortunately, a lot of us are content to rush through life building our foundation on the sand. And we don't take the time to build it on the rock. And that, and that's tragic because when the when the opportunity is there, and most importantly, when some of the tools necessary are presented to you to not take advantage of those tools, and then unfortunately, ultimately have to live through the consequences. It's it's sad and it's tragic. Toward that end, I want to focus for a moment on what you do with MMBB and this amazing organization of how it is supporting pastors and churches all over the country has done so for over a century now, not only helping to educate, but provide a lot of the tools necessary to survive and get through some of these unexpected events along with the expected, and that is the eventual retirement that we'll all soon face. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, we've been around over a century since 1911. We're a nonprofit Christian ministry, and our niche is providing benefits for pastors and staff of churches. And today I just wanted to mention that we have a comprehensive plan, which I call the three-in-one plan. Um, bottom line cost, it's 10% of the person's salary. So the person's getting 3000 a month, the cost would be $300 a month. And what this 10% provides is not just retirement, which you've mentioned, but also disability and life insurance protection. And that's part of building your foundation on the rock, because one never knows if one gets sick, especially during this COVID environment, or occasionally someone may pass away sooner than expected. And we provide the protection for pastors and staff members, um, not just for retirement down the road, but in case they get disabled or in case something happens and they pass away. Taking those steps, taking advantage of those tools available, uh, it seems to be a no-brainer. Sadly, a lot of pastors get busy, they get distracted, they don't worry about it, and more sadly still, a lot of churches don't think through that process. They maybe make a false assumption that, well, if I enjoy a nice 401k on my job, surely pastor must, not realizing or recognizing that maybe the church does not have such a mechanism in place. Maybe the church thinks, well, we're so small, we really don't have the 
capability of doing all of that, we or we just don't know what to do, so we do nothing. In that arena, <laughs> pardon me, in that arena, how can MMBB help? The point's well taken. Sometimes it's awkward for the pastor to ask for benefits for themselves, and I'm hoping that some of the treasurer's key finance people, elders, some of the key leaders of the church can step up and be an advocate for the pastor. And it doesn't have to be the pastor who initiates, but if one of the key financial persons or elder of the church wants to be in touch with me, I, I can set up a Zoom call, have a conversation, correspond by email, um, and provide information um, about this comprehensive plan for protection for the pastor, for not just retirement, but for the disability and life insurance benefits. And I think it's important for folks to realize that all of these services, the consultation, the financial management when it comes to managing dollars in a retirement plan, all of it is without cost or obligation whatsoever. Now, folks are familiar with the you know fee-based management services in a, uh, uh, in a in a broker relationship, things of this sort. This is a little bit unique and different, and because of a special endowment. MMBB is allowed to provide these services to churches and to pastors without any cost whatsoever. So when you think of this, particularly during this October and Pastor Appreciation Month, what better way to express your appreciation for your pastor than to make sure that he has all of the tools available at his disposal as part of that three-in-one comprehensive plan that Augie Bao just spoke of? That's retirement benefits disability income protection, life insurance protection, and an easy way to get more information is just to pick up the phone and call Augie Direct at 917-209-9911. Again, that's 917-209-9911 or online at mmbb.org. And Augie, I understand you work throughout Northern California, in fact, the Western states. So if somebody's listening in San Jose or in Santa Rosa or in Livermore, wherever your church might be located, and you think, yeah, you know what? Yeah, October, Pastor Appreciation Month, we need to make sure we're showing Pastor we appreciate him in every form and fashion, and to help lighten the load, remove this burden of the unexpected, and MMBB can certainly show you a very affordable way to do that. Exactly, and this is the perfect time to Start the conversation with me. We we could talk about some of the options that the churches can have, and in many cases, we could get things set up for for January for the new church budget year. And I did mention a comprehensive plan, which costs ten percent of salary. We do have a cheaper option for just fifty dollars a month. If the church can't afford the ten percent, the fifty dollars a month gets the pastor started in a retirement only plan. So we have. A couple of options for churches, and I would be glad to discuss it with a pastor or a key lay leader in terms of what works and fits the budget of the church. And some pastors might be, as you point out, embarrassed to bring up the topic. But, you know, if you love your pastor and you're a member of the Board of Deacons 
or of the board of trustees of your church or you're a lay leader of some sort thinking through this well if pastor were to be injured in an automobile accident for example uh, gosh we'd have to bring in somebody to fill the pulpit that's going to cost us money would we have the resources available through the church to meet all of pastor's need while he was recuperating what if some tragedy befell and suddenly his spouse lost her life and now all of a sudden there's income that needs to be replacement. Uh, they, they have the need for resources to care for children. My goodness, so many things, as I suggest, that can be uh, befall any of us as part of the unpredictability of life. Being prepared makes us just good stewards. So if you love your pastor, church, show your pastor you love him in a tangible way. Get more information. Again, no cost or obligation whatsoever. All of the services provided through MMBB because of the endowment that I referred to earlier cost you absolutely nothing. Now, there will be no other financial advisor that will say that to you, but MMBB in assisting churches and pastors can. For more information, call Augie Bow at 917-209-9911. That's 917-209-9911. Make this perhaps the greatest gift you can give in showing your pastor how much you appreciate his ministry to your church by making sure all of he and his family's needs are taken care of. It's more affordable than you might realize. Get more information. Call Reverend Augie Bow with MMBB at 917-209-9911. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Volunteering with Real Options has really strengthened my relationship with the Lord. The thing that touches my heart the most is just knowing that um, my involvement with Real Options is making a difference um, in the lives of young girls and young men and um, young children um, every day. I felt like I had to put feet to my faith just to sit in the counseling room across from somebody who comes from a background where there's a lot of negative influences, there's a lot of brokenness, and there's a lot of pain. I'm just available. Being a nurse is always something that I feel like God's called me to, but I think being here as an ultrasound nurse is really one of the first times I felt like this is something I'm passionate about and that I'm doing God's work. I'm a volunteer educator, and I volunteer at public high schools and junior highs. I just wanted to help you know, youth that have been through what I've been through. Um, I had a child at 17 years old, and you know, it was a struggle for me. And so I, I wanted, I didn't have the type of support that real options would have, the mentors and the other um, information that they could have given me to walk through this. And uh, so I really felt compelled to do it. Volunteering has impacted my life. What we're doing, it makes a difference. This is a draft, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. I was just thrilled to know that that ministry was in our neighborhood. And at that point, I realized that I really wanted to be a part of this and, and do something. And I feel the energy, the, the prayer life. I see people praying in their offices together. And, and I, you can feel the presence of, of Christ. And it's a serving community, and God calls us to serve. If a client comes in that has had an abortion in her past, um, I'm able to share with her uh, the Hope Ministries about how she can heal from the emotions of an abortion. I feel so blessed to just see so many miracles that happen on a weekly basis. It's an awesome place. It just feels so good to be here. 
Well, as you know, we've been showcasing many of these incredible stories that I think, uh, well, as you heard a moment ago, um, help to motivate that sense of giving feet to one's faith, giving back, mentoring, making a difference, being a part of an organization offering real options to women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies, offering real hope and real solutions. To tell us more, Sean Beretta joins us now. Sean is Community Outreach and Development Manager on behalf of Real Options. And, Sean, I think it's heartwarming to listen to some of those stories and hear how people, even through their own challenges, uh, their own difficult moments in life, have wanted to take those and really turn those challenges into opportunities. Absolutely. Um, You know, just ashes to beauty every single day in the ministry. And, you know, we have the most amazing volunteers serving with us. I thought I'd share um, a little bit of um, some of the descriptions of some of the volunteers that you heard from. The first volunteer was referring to her role as a church ambassador, and that's a very important role for us here at Will Options. An ambassador is a person who represents our ministry and connects um, real options to their church leadership so that they know about the services that we provide to the church and ways to mobilize those who want to volunteer locally in their community. The second volunteer, Angela, talked about serving in our clinics, which we believe is really the mission field right here in our um, city, here in the Bay Area. If you have a heart for this life-affirming work, um, a passion for women, um, you know, we'd love to connect with you and share what opportunities we have in our five clinics. And then the third volunteer was a registered nurse. And, you know, um, we are medical clinics, and we need medical professionals, nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors. You know, we provide services um, such as ultrasounds, STD testing, prenatal care, childbirth and parenting classes, and those are you know, use our medical professionals for that. Um, typically, those volunteers uh, will offer four to six hours uh, once or twice a month. And then, you know, on the administration side, um, that's where I'm at. We always need help. Uh, it's either project-based uh, volunteering or an event or something along that line. So a lot of real practical ways in which people get engaged, as you say, either serving as a church ambassador, a clinic counselor, some medical professionals that want to give back to the community in some, uh, you know, uh, part-time fashion during their off hours. And then, as you point out, helping out, uh, out on the administrative side, which with an organization with as many uh, locations as um, Real Options has that kind of help and support, which practically any of us can offer. I mean, if you can lick an envelope, they can use you. What are some of the other ways, Sean, in which volunteers can help engage with Real Options in making a difference? You know, my favorite way is um, the power of prayer. We have a prayer line that not only prays for our patients, but for our team um, and supporters as well. Prayer is really the key to protecting and advancing this ministry forward. Um, if you have a heart for prayer, you're a prayer warrior, um, reach out to me directly at outreach at realoptions.net. And then, you know, we have the most exciting, um, this is an exciting time of the year for us. We have our Ignite Life event on November 6th at Calvary Chapel in San Jose. 
you know, we can really use your time and talent. Right now we need about 30 volunteers to help us um, coordinate and run the event on a day. And you can go to friendsofrealoptions.net to learn more. And if you can't volunteer, we do encourage you to register to attend the in-person event. But if you prefer to watch it from the comfort of your home, we also have the virtual option. You know, it's really going to be an evening of hope and inspiration. Something we all need um, during this time to encourage us in our faith walk. Absolutely. And again, the date for that Ignite Life 2021, Advancing a Culture of Life, will be Saturday, November the 6th. Um, 5.30 p.m., and as Sean mentioned, you've got a couple of options. You can either uh, participate and be there in person uh, down in San Jose, or you can join virtually. One of the uh, speakers, in addition to uh, keynote Valerie Hill, the CEO of Real Options, is uh, a dear friend, a longtime friend of this program, Pastor Walter Hoy. So lots of exciting ways in which you can engage, give back to the community, be a mentor, make a difference. Want to find out more? Check out friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. And if you'd like to do something in terms of outreach, maybe serving as a church ambassador or coming down to the office and, and helping <coughs> helping out with stuffing envelopes or uh, clerical-type stuff, um, you can simply send an email to outreach at realoptions.net. That's outreach at realoptions.net. And again, more information available on the web about volunteerism and how you can make a difference. Go to friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Sean Peretta, Community Outreach and Development Manager with Real Options. Sean, good to hear the sound of your voice. Sean, yes. I let the let the cat out of the bag, uh, was a part of the team here at KFAX for many, many years. And uh, now she's uh, back there on the front lines with Real Options. And we appreciate much, very much both her, her heart, her spirit, and um, her desire to serve. Great example. Sean Beretta, we appreciate the time. Information, again, available on the web at friendsofrealoptions.net. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi his focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift to not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's it's funny because you described that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages. And it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life. And so looking back over those years, you know, meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing, it's um, it's really, um, you know, it's life. This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So, as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? So he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and starting around Christmas the year before, he started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery and you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially it, we didn't we didn't realize what it was. And then finally um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live. And so at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality, and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a little right. bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every uh, physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the weather. Right. It's just so rare. Um, uh, exactly. And then, you know, a, a little while before the diagnosis, we started to um, suspect it. And that was when he, um, you know, uh, really started getting it checked out. And then soon the diagnosis came. Lucy, what was this like for you when the diagnosis came? You're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt at least 
in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening, and number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family, and suddenly this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's, it was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had, we, Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get, you know, expedited workup and, and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room. And no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room. And because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking at it with our own eyes and then being doctors, we knew that this was a terminal illness. So it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once. Um, and then luckily, I think we skipped over the phase of thinking, why me? How could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people. This kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon, and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions, uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life, uh, the initial question of why me, I think, is, is very normal, it's very human, but then it maybe even begs a bigger question. Why not me? I mean, it happens. Uh, that's right. So, exactly. Paul, exactly. Paul wrote that in the book and said, yeah, the answer would be why not me, you know? So w once you get over the, the initial shock, was there... Did you go through feelings of anger, that, that sense of, of this, this young relationship? You'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point, that, that all of a sudden this, the love of your life was going to be ripped from you? I mean, certainly the, the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, and then sort of the, the real task, we were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we, we certainly had these um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing. He, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon, had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely and you, you have to make sense of a whole new world and set of circumstances. And I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea. Um, and so writing ultimately became the, the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short. We thought we had our whole lives together. Suddenly there's now a, an expiration date 
that we can see. So you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with, and that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime uh, caring for patients, and you're used to the physician patient relationship, uh, you are the one who's giving the the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul the physician to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is, you know, really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver, knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helped us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which, even if you have the knowledge, um, the the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it, and it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be. Um, if you're lucky, it was um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon. You know, but he he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that. I thought was really profound and interesting to see, and it helped shape my own own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, and we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage 4 lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, her husband Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways I think sets down a legacy by her husband Dr. Paul Kalanithi as he was diagnosed with stage 4 terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become 
when breath becomes air. You mentioned about his his background and love for literature. Uh, was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day to day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that it tends to a stage four? Um, cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter? Um, yes, exactly. All of those things. It's wild because if you'd asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grew up, he definitely would have said, I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, and uh, then the writing of the book, it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He became, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36, just starting his neurosurgical career. And then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments. And it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of, um, you know, how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times. And they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute, um, just a real um, positive experience hearing from doctors and patients. And ultimately, quickly from that essay came a book deal. Mm. Um, uh, and then it was sort of a, it was a journal, like you described. He was writing a manuscript to help him cope in real time. Very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing, it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole um, everything he'd learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life, and and as they begin to face uh, the the end chapter, don't really think through. Uh, has my life been meaningful? Meaningful and, 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 and how do we make uh, a sense of, of, of meaning and purpose in life, even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are, are very unwelcome, at least early on, and that is death, like in the case of, of Paul, who was facing his mortality at an age probably uh, a third of what is, is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables. And then, too, to leave that that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then too to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, Q 
chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy and he's trying to write during that. And so as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple different things like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever? And then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, those are the parts I would love. I would love the parts that were real and authentic. And the book is quite intimate and detailed and raw. Um, and I think that's partly why people are responding to it, sort of unflinching and really honest. And um, and it's his story. I, I wasn't going to ask him to change his story. So it did surprise me how um, uh, sort of intimate, the types of intimate things he shared. But I actually think that was a really wise decision. It turned out to be really positive, including for me. Um, you know, it, it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, they will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together. And then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs. But to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing, too, that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which, again, for listeners, is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you, in, in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, the death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, the, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it, the reality is it's not, it's not the end. It's just a different phase of love. Elaborate on that. Oh, I love that quote so much. He, um, C.S. Lewis writes that in um, A Grief Observed, and he, he says exactly that. Bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases. And that I just gasped as I read it because I felt that way. I felt after Paul dies, I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the um, the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book when breath becomes air into the real book and then helping random house choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how paul died and reflecting on paul those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if paul and i are still a team i'm still working on this book and like i'm still doing something to help paul live out his life it's really interesting it's um i knew i would feel sad and anxious after he died and i just after he died and i have but I didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same. And I have. I wrote a I wrote an essay in the New York Times called "My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow," and it's about it's about that exact idea. And I think I've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief. Your your young daughter was too young to to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? 
I hope so. It's really my prized possession, and I'm I'm I can't wait until she can read it. Um, the takeaway for for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today. Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship, to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age, and then wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our of our presence, so to speak, having been here on Earth. In, in terms of the big take away. If there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from Paul's book, what would it be? You know, the book, he's writing it, as you know, from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man. And he's talking about facing mortality. And the thing he wanted to share is, you know, as you, as you're dying and as you're living, um, how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful. Um, uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> I keep being afraid, you know, people will ask me, so what, so what is the meaning of life? And what is when rest becomes their say about that? And I think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning. Um, and that's, sort of what he gets deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us, and that is to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at at, uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life. And yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to to die with grace and and what that picture looks like. That's a part of life that, that, you know, we don't understand a lot about. We spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that and yet learning how to to make the, the final moments of life have as much significance and value and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on Earth, I think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book, again, is called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Catalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available to the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Catalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline.